Chapter 8 of Recruit for Andromeda by Stephen Marlowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 You've got a hand at the temple's kid, brother. Yeah, cool as ice cubes. You guys kidding? He doesn't know what's in store for him, that's all. Do you? Now that you mention it, no. Isn't a man here who can say for sure what kind of environmental challenges he'll have to respond to. Hypnosurgery sees to it the guys who went through the thing won't talk about it. As if that isn't security enough, the subject's gotta be a brand new arrival. Shh, here he comes. The brothers' temple entered Earth City's one tavern quietly, but on their arrival, all the speculative talk subsided. The long bar, built to accommodate half a hundred pairs of elbows comfortably, gleamed with a luster unfamiliar to Temple. It might have been marble, but marble translucent rather than opaque, giving a beautiful three-dimensional effect to the service patterns. What'll it be? Jason demanded. Whatever you're drinking is fine. Jason ordered two scotches, neat, and the brothers drank. When Jason got a refill, he started talking. Does T.A.T. mean anything to you, Kit? Tat? Um, no. Wait a minute. T.A.T. Isn't that some kind of protective psychological test? That's it. You're shown a couple of dozen pictures, more or less ambiguous, never cut and dry. Each one comes from a different stratum of the social environment, and you're told to create a dramatic situation, a story for each picture. From your stories, for which you draw on your whole background as a human being, the psychometrician should be able to build a picture of your personality and maybe find out what, if anything, is bothering you. What's that to do with this response to environmental challenge thing? Well, said Jason, drinking a third scotch, the superboys have evolved TAT to its ultimate. TAT, that stands for Thematic Apperception Test. But in ECR, Environmental Challenge and Response, you don't see a picture and create a dramatic story around it. Instead, you get thrust into the picture, the situation, and you have to work out the solution or suffer whatever consequences the particular environmental challenge has in store for you. I think I get you, but it's all make-believe, huh? That's the hell of it, Jason told him. No, it's not. It is, and it isn't. I don't know. You make it perfectly clear, Temple smiled. The red-headed boy combed his brown hair, wishing it weren't blonde. Jason shrugged. I'm sorry. For reasons you already know, the ECR isn't very clear to me, or to anyone. You're not actually in the situation in a physical sense, but it can affect you physically. You feel you're there. You actually live everything that happens to you, getting injured if an injury occurs, and dying if you get killed. It's permanent, although you might actually be sleeping at the time. So whether it's real or not is a question for philosophy. From your point of view, from the point of view of someone going through it, it's real. So I become part of this, uh, game in about an hour. Right. You and whoever the Russians offer is your competition. No one will blame you if you want to back out, Kit. From what you tell me, you haven't been adequately trained on Mars. If you draw on the entire background of your life for this ECR, then you don't need training. Shut up and stop worrying. I'm not backing out of anything. I didn't think you would. Not if you're still as much like your old man as you used to be. Kit, good luck. The fact that the technicians working around him were Earthmen permitted Temple to relax a little. 
Probably it was planned that way, for entering the huge white cube of a building and ascending to the twelfth level on a moving ramp, Temple had spotted many figures, not all of them human. If he had been strapped to the table by unfamiliar aliens, if the scent of alien flesh, or non-flesh, had been strong in the room, if the fingers, or appendages, which greased his temples and clamped an electrode to each one, had not felt like human fingers, if the men talking to him had spoken in voices too harsh or too sibilant for human vocal cords, if all that had been the case, whatever composure still remained his would have vanished. I'm Dr. Olson, said one white-gowned figure. If any injuries occur while you lie here, I'm permitted to render first aid. The same for limited psychotherapy, said a short, heavier man. Though a fat lot of good it does when we never know what's bothering you and don't have the time to work on it even if we did know. In short, said a third man who failed to identify himself, you may consider yourself as the driver of one of those midget rocket racers. Do they still have them on Earth? Good. You are the driver, and we here in this room are the mechanics waiting in your pit. If anything goes wrong, you can pull out of the race temporarily and have it repaired. But in this particular race, there is no pulling out. All repairs are strictly of a first-aid nature and must be done while you continue whatever you are doing. If you break your finger and find a splint appearing on it miraculously, don't say you weren't warned. Best of luck to you, young man, said the psychotherapist. Here we go said the doctor, finding the large vein on the inside of Temple's forearm and plunging a needle into it. Temple's senses whirled instantly, but as his vision clouded, he thought he saw a large, complex device swing down from the ceiling and bathe his head in warming radiation. He blinked, squinted, could see nothing but a swirling, cloudy opacity. Approximately two seconds later, Sofia Androvna Petrovich watched as the white-gowned comrade tied a rubber strap around her arm, waited for the vein to swell with blood, then forced a needle in through its thick outer layer. Was that a nozzle overhead? No, rather a lens, for from it came amber warmth, which soon faded, with everything else, into thick, churning fog. Temple was abruptly aware of running plunging headlong and blindly through the fiercest storm he had ever seen. Gusts of wind whipped at him furiously. Rain cascaded down in drenching torrents. Foliage, brambles, branches struck against his face, mud sucked at his feet. Big animal shapes lumbered by in the green gloom, as frightened by the storm as was Temple. His head darted this way and that. His eyes could see the gnarled tree trunks, the dense greenery, the lianas, creepers, and vines of a tropical rainforest. But dimly, green murk swirled in like thick smoke with every gust of wind, with the rain obscuring vision almost completely. Temple ran until his lungs burned and he thought he must exhale fire. His leaden feet fought the mud with growing difficulty for every stride he took. He ran wildly and in no set direction, convinced only that he must find shelter or perish, Twice he crashed bodily into trees. Twice stumbled to his knees only to pull himself upright again, sucking air painfully into his lungs and cutting out in a fresh direction. He ran until his legs bulked. He fell, collapsing first at the knees, then the waist, then flopping face down in the mud. Something prodded his back as he fell, and reaching behind him weakly, Temple was aware for the first time that a bow and a quiver of arrows hung suspended from his shoulders by a strong leather thong. 
He wore nothing but a loincloth of some nameless animal skin, and he wondered idly if he had slain the animal with the weapon he carried. Yet when he tried to recollect, he found he could not. He remembered nothing but his frantic flight through the rainforest, as if all his life he had run in a futile attempt to leave the rain behind him. Now as he lay there, the mud sucking at his legs, his chest, his armpits, he could not even remember his name. Did he have one? Did he have a life before the rainforest? Then why did he forget? A sense not fully developed in man, called intuition by those who fail to understand it, made him prop his head up on his hands and squint through the downpour. There was something off there in the foliage. Someone. A woman. Temple's breath caught in his throat sharply. The woman stood half a dozen paces off, observing him coolly with hands on flanks. She stood tall and straight despite the storm, and from trim ankles to long, lithe legs to flaring, loin-clothed hips, to supple waist and tawny skin of fine, bare breasts and shoulders, to proud, haughty face and long, dark hair loose in the storm and glistening with rain, she was magnificent. Her long, bronzed body gleamed with wetness, and Temple realized she was as tall as he, a wild, beautiful goddess of the jungle. She was part of the storm, and he accepted her. But strangely, with the same fear the storm evoked, she would make a lover the whole world might relish. What world, Temple thought in confusion. But she would make a terrible foe, and foe she was. I want your bow and arrows, she told him. Temple wanted to suggest they share the weapon, but somehow he knew in this world, which was like a dream, and yet was vividly real, that the woman would share nothing with anybody. They're mine, Temple said, climbing to his knees. He remembered the animal shapes lumbering by in the storm, and he knew that he and the animals would both stalk prey when the storm subsided, and he would need the bow and arrows. The woman moved toward him with a liquid motion beautiful to behold, and for the space of a heartbeat, Temple watched her come. I will take them, she said. Temple wasn't sure if she could or not, and although she was a woman, he feared her strangely. Again, it was as if something in this dream world, real world, could tell him more than he should know. Making up his mind, Temple sprang to his feet, whirled about, and ran. He was plunging through the wild storm once more, blinded by the occasional flashes of jagged green lightning, deafened by the peals of thunder which followed, and he was being pursued. Minutes, hours, more than hours. For an eternity, Temple ran. A reservoir of strength he never knew he possessed provided the energy for each painful step, and running through the storm seemed the most natural thing in the world to him. But there came a time when his strength failed, not slowly, but with shocking suddenness. Temple fell, crawled a ways, was still. It took him minutes to realize the storm no longer buffeted him, more minutes to learn he had managed to crawl into a cave. He had no time to congratulate himself on his good fortune, for something stirred outside. I am coming in. The woman called to him from the green murk. Temple strung an arrow to his bow, pulled the string back, and faced the cave's entrance, squatting on his heels. Then your first step shall be your last. I'll shoot to kill. And he meant it. Silence from outside. Deafening. Temple felt sweat streaming under his armpits. His hands were clammy. His hands trembled. You haven't seen the last of me, the woman promised. After that, Temple knew she was gone. He slept as one dead. When Temple awoke... Bright sunlight filtered in through the foliage outside his cave. Although the ground was a muddy ruin, the storm had stopped. Edging to the mouth of the cave, Temple spread the foliage with his hands, peered cautiously outside. 
Satisfied, he took his bow and arrows and left the cave, pangs of hunger nodding his stomach painfully. The cave had been weathered in the side of a short, steep abutment a dozen places from a gushing, swollen stream. Temple followed the course of the stream as it twisted through the jungle, ranging half a mile from his cave until the water course widened to form a water hole. All morning, Temple waited there, crouching in the grass, until one by one, the forest animals came to drink. He selected a small, hair-like thing, notched an arrow to his bow, let it fly. The animal jumped, collapsed, began to slink away into the undergrowth, dragging the arrow from its hindquarters. Temple darted after it, caught it in his hands, and bashed its life out against the bowl of a tree. Returning to the cave, he found two flinty stones, shredded a fallen branch, and nursed the shards dry in the strong sunlight. Soon he made a fire and ate. In the days which followed, Temple returned to the waterhole and bagged a new catch every time he ventured forth. Things went so well that he began to range further and further from his cave exploring. Once, however, he returned early to the waterhole and found footprints in the soft mud of its banks. The woman. That she had been observing him while he had hunted had never occurred to Temple, but now that the proof lay clearly before his eyes, the old feeling of uncertainty came back, and the next day, when he crept stealthily to the waterhole and saw the woman squatting there in the brush, waiting for him, he fled back to his cave. The thought hit him suddenly. If she were stalking him, why must he flee as from his own shadow? There would be no security for either of them until either one or the other were gone, and gone meant dead. Then Temple would do his own stalking. For several nights, Temple hardly slept. He could have found the waterhole blindfolded merely by following the stream. Each night he would reach the hole and work, digging with a sharp stone, until he fashioned a pit fully ten feet deep and six feet across. This he covered with branches, twigs, leaves, and finally dirt. When he returned in the morning, he was satisfied with his work. Unless the woman made a careful study of the area, she would never see the pit. All that day, Temple waited with his back to the waterhole, facing the camouflaged pit. The trap he had set, but the woman failed to appear. When she also did not come on the second day, he began to think his plan would not work. The third day, Temple arrived with the sun, sat as before in the tall grass between the pit and the waterhole, and waited. Several paces beyond his hidden trap, he could see the tall trees of the jungle with vines and creepers hanging from their branches. At his back, a man's length behind him was the waterhole, its deepest waters no more than waist high. Temple waited until the sun stood high in the sky, then was fascinated as a small antelope minced down to the waterhole for a drink. You'll make a fine breakfast tomorrow, he thought, smiling. Something, that strange sixth sense again, made Temple turn around and stand up. He had time for a brief look, a hoarse cry. The woman had been cleverer. She had set the final trap. She stood high up on a branch of one of the trees beyond the hidden pit, and for an instant, Temple saw her fine figure clearly, naked but for the loincloth. Then the soft curves became spring steel. The woman arched her body there on the high branch, grasping a stout vine rocking back and forth with it. Temple raised his bow, set an arrow to let it fly, but by then the woman was in motion. Long and lithe and graceful, she swung down on her vine, gathering momentum as she came. Her feet almost brushed the tip of Temple's pit at the lowest arc of her flight, but she clung to the vine and it began to swing up again like a pendulum toward Temple. At the last moment, he hunched his shoulder and tried to raise his arms for protection. The woman was quicker. She gathered her legs up under her, still clutching the vine with her slim, strong hands. 
The vine's arc carried her up at him. Her knees were at a level with his head, and she brought them up savagely, close together striking Temple brutally at the base of his jaw. Temple screamed as his head was jerked back with terrible force. The bow flew from his fingers, and he fell into the waterhole flat on his back. Sophia let the vine carry her out over the water, then dropped from it. Waist deep, she waded to where the man lay, unconscious on his back, half in, half out of the shallowest part of the water. She reached him, prodded his chest with her foot. When he did not stir, she rocked her weight down gracefully on her long leg, forcing his head under water. With a haughty smile, she watched the bubbles rise. In the small room where Temple's body lay in repose on a table, the white smock doctor looked at the psychotherapist questioningly. What's happening? I can't tell, doctor, but... Suddenly, Temple's body rocked convulsively, his neck stretched, his head shot up and back, Blood trickled from his mouth. The doctor thrust out expert hands, examined Temple's jaw dexterously. Broken? The psychotherapist demanded in a worried voice. No, dislocated. He looks like he's been hit by a sledgehammer. Wherever he is now, whatever's happening, this ECR is the damnedest thing. Temple's still form shuddered convulsively. He began to gasp and cough, obviously fighting for breath. An ugly blue swelling had by now lumped at the base of his jaw. What's happening? demanded the psychotherapist. I can't be sure, said the doctor, shaking his head. He seems to have difficulty breathing. It's as if he were drowning. Bad. Is there anything we can do? No. We wait until this particular sequence ends. The doctor examined Temple again. If it doesn't end soon, this man will die of asphyxiation. Call it off, the psychotherapist pleaded. If he dies now, Earth will be represented by Russia. Call it off! Someone entered the room. I have the authority, he said, selecting a hypodermic from the doctor's rack and piercing the skin of Temple's forearm with it. This first test has gone far enough. The Russian entry is clearly the winner, but Temple must live if he is to compete in another. The racking convulsions which shook Temple's body subsided. He ceased his choking, began to breathe regularly. With grim swiftness, the doctor went to work on Temple's dislocated jaw, while the man who had stopped the contest rendered artificial respiration. The man was Alaric Arkalian. The comrade doctor was exultant. Jupiter training, comrade, has given us a victory. How can you be sure? Our entrant is unharmed. The contest has been called. Wait, she is coming too. Sophia stretched, rubbed her bruised knees, sat up. What happened, comrade? The doctor demanded. My knees ache, said Sophia, rubbing them some more. I... I killed him, I think. Strange. I never dreamed it would be that real. In a sense, it was real. If you killed the American, he will stay dead. Nothing mattered but that world we were in. A fantastic place. Now I remember everything. All the things I couldn't remember then. But your, uh, dream. What happened? Sophia rubbed her bruised knees a third time ruefully. I knocked him unconscious with these. I forced his head under water and drowned him. Before I could be sure I finished the job, I came back. Funny that I should want to kill him without compunction, without reason. Sophia frowned, sat up. I don't think I want any more of this. The doctor surveyed her coldly. This is your task on the Stalin trek. This you will do. I killed him without a thought. Enough. You will rest and get ready for the second contest. But if he's dead, apparently he's not, or we would have been informed, Comrade Petrovich. That is true, agreed the second man, 
who had remained silent until now. Prepare for another test, comrade. Sophia was on the point of arguing again. After all, it wasn't fair. If in the dream world, which were not dream worlds, she was motivated by but one factor, and that to destroy the American, and if she faced him with the strength of her Jupiter training, it would hardly be a contest. And now that she could think of the American without the all-consuming hatred the dream world had fostered in her, she realized he had been a pleasant-looking young man, quite personable, in fact. I could like him, Sophia thought, and hoped fervently she had not drowned him. Still, if she had volunteered for the Stalin trek, and this was the job they assigned her, I need no rest, she told the doctor, hardly trusting herself, for she realized she might change her mind. I'm ready any time you are. End of chapter 8